to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has worked at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Each episode, we will answer questions from you, our listeners. To learn more about the show, submit a question, access educational material, or even take a quiz, you can visit us on hightruths.com. Hello again, everyone. Ready for more rock stardom? We have another amazing star in today's episode as we learn about addiction treatment. Over 20 million Americans struggle with a substance use disorder, and only 12% get treatment at a treatment facility. Despite this huge treatment gap, the addiction treatment is a $35 billion industry. There are amazing treatment facilities out there that will change people's lives and bring meaning and hope to people who were at the depths of despair. But there's also fraud. Drug abuse is big business. People who are down and desperate may fall into paying thousands of dollars in scams. I think there is a special place in hell for people who profiteer off other people's pain. February 2021, a father and son from Inland Empire were required to pay $26.7 million in fines for drug rehab fraud. John Schwab is a director of Body Brokers, a crime thriller that takes to task the multi-billion dollar addiction treatment industry. Schwab is hoping this film will bring some attention to the scam. In a different tragic story, Blue Cross and Blue Shield sent Joseph a check for $33,000 in insurance benefits for attending drug rehab. The check went to him personally instead of going to the treatment facility or people who provided the care. It was a legitimate payment and legitimate services. But what do you think Joseph did with that money? Joseph struggled for years with drug addiction, with 20 rehab visits and two prison terms. Joseph was found dead in a hotel from a drug overdose days after cashing his insurance checks. His mother blames Blue Cross and Blue Shield. A very sad and possibly preventable death. The high truth question today comes from Mark Nimitz, a hardworking insurance broker who asked a question about this topic. Thank you for bringing high truths to everybody's attention. I look forward to listening to the weekly podcasts. My name is Mark Nimitz. I'm 36 and an insurance broker in San Diego. Like many Americans, I have family, friends, and clients who have struggled with addiction. It seems that rehab is a revolving door. How do people know if they are receiving a reputable addiction treatment versus a scam? Thank you to your experts. Mark, thank you for your question and your legitimate concern. How do we tell the difference between a good program versus quackery? Let's find out with our rock star expert today, Dr. Mitch Rosenthal. Dr. Mitch Rosenthal is the founder of Phoenix House, one of the nation's leading nonprofit substance abuse treatment organizations and president of the Rosenthal Center for Addiction Studies. The Rosenthal Center has significant role in the treatment field, providing a valuable platform for advocacy and the formulation of public policy. 
Dr. Rosenthal has served as a White House advisor on drug abuse, a special consultant to the Office of National Drug Control Policy, chairman of the New York State Advisory Council on Drug Abuse, and president of the American Association of Psychoanalytic Physicians. He is a lecturer in psychiatry at Columbia University's College of Physicians and Surgeons. Dr. Rosenthal is a psychiatrist whose research, clinical skills, and advocacy have produced model treatment protocols widely replicated throughout the country and abroad. He's one of the pioneers in the field of addiction. Dating to 1965, he formed the first military service-sponsored therapeutic community for addiction treatment at the United States Naval Hospital in Oakland, California. As Deputy Commissioner of New York City Addiction Services Agency, he created the Phoenix House, citywide network of treatment facilities in 1967. When he resigned his city post in 1972, he became president of the now independent Phoenix House Foundation and oversees the national expansion of the treatment and prevention services over the following three and a half decades. Dr. Rosenthal earned his B.A. from Lafayette College and his medical degree from the State University of New York Downstate Medical Center. He's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, deputy chair of the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependence, and serves on the board of the Partnership for Drug-Free Kids and Delancey Street Foundation. Dr. Mitch Rosenthal's bio is included in the High Truths show notes. Dr. Mitch Rosenthal, welcome to High Truths. Hi, I'm glad to be here. It is an honor to have a rock star, and I have to say that I am uh, a fan and a groupie of yours and watch your uh, various messages and videos that, that you send out and very much enjoy them. Um, I thought we would start with, you know, with your history. You are a, really a living history book of addiction treatment in the United States. You're a pioneer in in the um, medical field of addiction. As a psychiatrist, you started treatment for the military in Oakland, California, and then you went all the way across country to New York. So really coast to coast addiction treatment back in the 60s. Can you let us know about that? Well, I was so fortunate because I was in the Naval Reserve as a medical officer uh, from the time of medical school. Go Navy. Yeah. (laughs) And, and and in 1965, the Navy said, hey, Rosenthal, you owe us two years of active service. That was no surprise. I thought I was going to teach child psychiatry at the teaching hospital in Oakland, California. But in fact, what psychiatrists were doing was diagnosing Vietnam veterans coming out, uh, Marines and sailors, uh, with character disorders uh, for drug use and alcoholism and uh, and saying they're unfit for military duty. And I said, this is crazy. These young men had trouble before they came into the service. They had trouble in high school. They had family trouble. We have a great moment. They're here. Why don't we engage them in treatment? And I was very lucky that the... Uh, uh, the the head of psychiatry at the hospital uh, really agreed to a research project where we would treat uh, these people for one month to three months, sometimes more, with the idea that they would go back to active, effective duty. And uh, 
the, I, so that this was built both, we were creating a new treatment model, but we were also doing it on a research basis. And uh, lo and behold, uh, after uh, treatment, we were able to send 70% of these young men back to active duty. And that, that really caught everybody's uh, uh, attention. And the other lucky thing was that early in my stay in Oakland, I, at a grand rounds of the Department of Psychiatry, there were two visitors who were uh, participants or residents of Sinanon in San Francisco. And I, I met this young man and young woman, and I said, my God, you could see the before and after in listening and talking to these people. Uh, two nights later, I was in Sinanon in San Francisco, and it's a long, wonderful story. Tell, but, tell our listeners what Sinanon is. Well, Sinanon uh, founded in 1966, 60, no, earlier in the maybe 63, by Chuck Diedrich, uh, an alcoholic who was actually asked to leave Alcoholics Anonymous because he talked too much and took up all the oxygen. <laughs> but he, he uh, started to bring in street people into his own apartment and uh, deliver treatment. And, and then they moved into a residential setting uh, and worked with one another. And it, it was a, uh, a, a, very, a, a very effective treatment program. It was, it was not professionally driven. It was peer driven. Uh, but the people who were there now, say six months or nine months or a year and a half, were the leaders and the role models and the, the therapists, if you will, or the peer counselors for the new people coming in. And the model was long-term treatment. And they were very effective. Um, and and Synanon was uh, looked at by the, a few other professionals at that time. Uh, uh, Dr. Dan Casriel, a psychiatrist from New York, came in and was just knocked out with what they were doing and wrote a book about it. Uh, a sociologist, Dr. Louis Yablonsky, wrote another book about it. But the uh, the resident, uh, the the Synanon leadership wanted to help me at the Naval Hospital. So twice a week, people from Synanon to the four, even sometimes six people would come from uh, San Francisco over the bridge to Oakland and participate in groups that I was running. So it was a very, uh, you know, they, they were very important in creating the peer dynamic. And ironically, at the Naval Hospital, there was a psychiatrist before me who had heard of Maxwell Jones uh, a psychiatrist in Scotland who had started uh, a therapeutic community. But what it was, was uh, patient participation, uh, trying to get patients to be active, but it was not peer-driven therapy. So here we were, I, I came in 
And, you know, patients are on the psych ward are lounging around in pajamas. The staff are having morning meetings. It is a very, it's, it's a languishing, it's a languishing group. There was no, there was no vital uh, energy. And uh, I, I changed that uh, by, uh, by creating very active peer groups. And the, the, the help of the Synanon people can't be overstated. They were, they were phenomenal. And so, uh, yeah, uh, because as you'll see, that 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 growth, where the 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 people who are there now help the people who are coming in, so that there is a generational transfer of not just uh, uh, information, but uh, what happens is people get taught how to be patients, how to disclose honestly, what would take three years in uh, private psychotherapy for somebody to become a, an effective patient could be achieved in a couple of months in this kind of community. I'm real curious about the patient population. Like, So this is Vietnam era. Is it just men? Are there any women? What drugs no, were no, people no, using? No, no, no women. Uh, no women. No, because no women at that time were in combat so women didn't go to combat stations so it was it was men most the median age was probably about 26 but the range was 19 to you know 19 to, to 50 um and uh and the drugs the, well the the drugs were uh heroin uh, mostly some amphetamines, marijuana, so, and, and alcohol, and, and alcohol in a mix. Uh, they, and, you know, and I think the military to this day has, it's not like you test positive and they kick you out. They have, you know, they try treatment uh, right before. No, they, they, well, the military made a lot of advances saying, look, if you come forward with a drug problem, will help you get treatment. If you don't come forward and we pick you up on routine screening, we're going to put you out of the Navy or the army or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I, I thought it was, I thought it was enlightened policy on the, on the part of the defense department. Yeah. So I wanted, I thought, well, wouldn't this be wonderful to do this kind of group peer therapy with mothers of troubled kids, right? My child's, background a child psychiatry background and i came back to new york and consulted with my former mentor and teacher uh richard silberstein who who had developed the staten island mental health society and dick said to me mitch you know the city uh, is trying to get drug programs started and you're one of the psychiatrists in the country who's had experience so he introduced me to the Lindsay team and I got hired to run the rehabilitation efforts in New York city. I became deputy commissioner for rehabilitation of the newly formed addiction services agency. And wearing that hat, I developed Phoenix house. And it started with, it started with 10 people on the upper West side of Manhattan at two Oh five West 85th street. 
<laughs> in what was a very rundown neighborhood and today apartments are millions of dollars but that's a whole other that's a whole other story and, and tell tell our listeners about what phoenix house is well the phoenix house is a therapeutic community it's long term treatment uh the the rain, the the idea was to get somebody anywhere between nine and uh, 18 months of treatment, depending on, on need. Uh, while there were uh, 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 social workers and psychologists, uh, it, was not a, it was not a professionally driven program. The professionals were part of a peer culture. So this is a high, you know, a Phoenix house consists of anywhere from 40 to 150 people, uh, men and women. Uh, sometimes you have an adolescent population. We can talk about that uh, in a bit. Uh, and it is it is peer driven. So I am I am in a group uh, with you and you are talking and I say, hold on there. You know, I don't think you're telling the truth or I don't see I don't think you're you're seeing clearly uh, what the issues are here. I don't think you're relating to uh, the problems that you had with your your mother or your father. OK, that's one dimension. The other dimension is if you hear me talking about the difficulties I had with my father, it encourages you to speak up about difficulties you had with your father so yeah. you can get you can get people to have to, to, people come into treatment being strangers to their unconscious and in a couple of months they begin to be really very thoughtful about their own psychic development so it's it's uh it's, it's a form of treatment that uh i i found very exciting it changed my professional life because when I started all this, I was uh, meant to be a private uh, psychoanalytic psychotherapist and child psychiatrist. And then I, I found the power of the peer group, uh, which I thought was phenomenal, and uh, kept thinking of ways to facilitate and support that effort. So I taught the first generation the first generation uh, helped teach the next generation and so forth. So that what started out with 10 people in, on the Upper West Side uh, became multiple residences around the city. Uh, I think we had uh, 10 or 12 residences in New York uh, in every borough except Staten Island. Uh, uh, when we got invited to come to California because they uh, saw how effective this could be. And uh, California then went to Texas because Texas saw this and, and wanted it. And it, it grew. And when I stepped down as CEO of Phoenix House uh, 10 years ago, there were 55 Phoenix houses in 10 states with a residential population of over 7,000 men and women, boys and girls, mothers and children, uh, all doing what I've described. That's awesome. Well, I mean, you're the definition of a pioneer, and it's interesting how life kind of, you know, helps you flow That's in right. that direction. 
That's right. Yeah. I mean, there were there were these lucky there were these lucky breaks. Yeah. Uh, oh, and I just was fortunate to be able to take advantage of them. That's amazing. And so now, fast forward fifty years, are we on the right or the wrong direction in terms of addiction treatment? Uh, no, America is stalled, uh, and it's stalled because of a lack of leadership. Uh, Biden is encouraging. He has uh, said he that he wants to spend $125 billion over the next 10 years to expand treatment and prevention. But uh, at the moment, he's got his hands full, and, and I don't think uh, addiction is on the top of the list, even though we have 80,000 people a year in the country dying of uh, drug-related causes and overdoses. Yeah. So I I think we're stuck. Um, We may get out of it. We need to appoint a a dynamic, articulate uh, spokesperson who has the president's backing. Uh, Otherwise, otherwise it it isn't going to change. That doesn't mean that there can't be very good places for treatment. There are, but the numbers are not, you know, significant in terms of need. You know, we have uh, hundreds of thousands of people in need of treatment. And and I I think your analysis is right. Things are stalled um, overall throughout the years and your career. I mean, there's an attention to the problem that there never was. It was a a closet disease. Um, And and now uh, the issue of addiction is is really coming out of the closet. I think the pandemic. I think the reason it may be coming out of the closet. Mm-hmm. We have demonstrated that addiction is a very treatable disease. I think we've made progress of, over the years, and you're a man of action, so you want to see more, and we're, we're stagnant. Um, you know, Phoenix House came from a little few-bed facilities to multi-bed facilities, but I remember one time when we talked previously, you're, you expect concern that attendance is down. Addiction is not like other diseases. People don't wake up in the morning with a realization uh, that they're in real trouble and that they have to go for help. Very few people enter treatment voluntarily uh, in a pure sense. They enter treatment because they are coerced. They're coerced by the criminal justice system. They're coerced by employers. They're impl- uh, coerced by family. Right. Coercion is not necessarily bad in that sense. No. It's good. Most people it's who are in it were coerced. It is the root. <laughs> it, it, but there isn't sufficient appreciation on the part of uh, government leadership. So you have a, a sufficient integration of, say, the criminal justice system, the mental health system. And in public messaging, you know, if you thought about what I was saying and then sat down with some of the brightest advertising people in the country, they could create messaging and public service announcements that would help educate the American public. You have to uh, speak up and, and push for help. Yeah. yeah. We are fragmented. We're fragmented with harm reduction. We're, we're uh, fragmented with medical interventions. 
all of the harm reduction medical interventions can help bring people into treatment. But you have to be thinking that way. You can't be thinking about how to give somebody safe needles for the next 10 years. That's ridiculous. And, and uh, uh, you, you wouldn't want your child to be getting clean needles for the next 10 years. You'd want them to be going back school and going to college. So it, it, let's let's talk more of that, because I, I don't know if that a lot of people and even people who say they want harm reduction understand that distinction. A lot of people think harm reduction is needle exchange, um, meeting people where they are, even safe injection sites, and they call uh, fentanyl testing strips. And they call that, well, let's do harm reduction, um, which is good on one end, but doesn't it's not the whole big picture. In my mind, it is only good if it is part of an overall strategy for comprehensive treatment. It is, it is in fact, destructive if it's not. If it's just an end in itself, if it's going to be you know, going to the safe injection site for 10 years, if somebody's going to be getting fentanyl strips for the next five years, uh, it's, it's very destructive. And by the way, I don't think we have good figures on how many of those people die uh, because... You, because it'd you, be sad. Yeah. It'd be very sad. I mean, it sounds compassionate, but it's uninformed. Do you think that it's part of normalizing drug use? It, it is part of what is normalizing drug use. But what has been normalizing drug use is a marijuana use. And if you look at marijuana use... It got normalized because George Soros and Peter Lewis and others started to put millions and millions of dollars to uh, change, not only to decriminalize, which is fine, but to change the view of marijuana as a harmful drug. And it's uh, been a horrible, horrible societal public health catastrophe that we're just seeing. We're not out of it. I mean... We have we have so many states that have legalized. Let's hold on here for a couple of years. Let's analyze what's happened in Colorado, in Washington, Oregon. Let's see what the effects have been of legalization. How many people are dying in automobile accidents? How many people are having psychotic episodes? How many kids are uh, have developmental problems because of these drugs. Right. How how many emergency department visits are gone up? What percentage of behavioral health admissions are due to or, or in addition to marijuana? And frankly, um, what's the mortality? Because we're not even looking at that. We're like where we were 100 years ago where, oh, nobody dies from tobacco until somebody saw, hey, these lungs are black. And well, who said those black lungs are from tobacco? Um, so we hopefully learn our lessons from the path. It took us 100 years with tobacco to, to learn that there are dangers, not just for firsthand smoke, but secondhand smoke. And I just hope that it doesn't take 100 years. It maybe it'll just take 50 years um, for us to learn the lessons with marijuana. Think of the irony that it took 100 years to learn the truth about tobacco. And the tobacco companies for reasons of developing greater profit are investing millions and millions and millions of dollars to legalize, to lobby state governments, to make marijuana commercial as big and as soon as possible. 
nobody in a position of power is talking truth uh, to these to these uh, tobacco companies. They should be they they should be held up. They should be held up and ridiculed with science, uh, and uh, they wouldn't stand up to it. Yeah. And and even the the push of the the medical and 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 the grab that they have and, and saying well it's my medicine um, anyone who comes to the emergency department saying well it's my medicine they're 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 like ha 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 it's my medicine it's like really what's your medical condition and they just you know make something up it's like you know because let's treat that illness doctors in the emergency room have the same view that it's relatively benign uh, marijuana. They haven't been properly uh, educated, either in medical school or, or uh, after medical school. Look at the, look at the uh, narcotic pills and look at Purdue Farmer, which used doctors to sell other doctors that they use narcotics uh, safely. And that they were not, that OxyContin, for example, was not addicting. And look at the, you know, thousands and thousands of people who died because of that. Right. Right. Uh, So, so nobody's putting, nobody's putting all this together. Yeah. Mark Nimitz is the insurance broker who called into High Truth. So thank you, Mark. um, And asks, how do you differentiate a good treatment facility versus a fraud and, and scam. Tell us the scams you've heard about. <laughs> well, it's a very it's a very difficult question. It's a very good question that Mark raised. And it's a very difficult one to answer. And uh, parents and other referrers are really up against it because we don't have standards like we have hospitals. We don't have ratings for treatment, drug treatment programs like we have for hospitals. You know, I get calls frequently from uh, parents or relatives of people in trouble of, of where to go. And, you know, I certainly know the good treatment programs. And the, by the way, the good treatment programs are longer rather than shorter. You can absolutely write off all of the miracle promises, all of the 24-hour boys or the seven-day boys and all of that stuff. It's nonsense. Uh, and it's it's just for-profit manipulation. Uh, so you then you then need uh, uh, you you then need uh, programs that are uh, longer term, and it doesn't mean that the program has to be all longer term residential. It means that whatever the program, residential, outpatient, it has to be longer term. You're not going to uh, uh, have a a patient uh, come to psychic self-knowledge, it's going to take a year or two. And uh, then, by the way, it's very promising. You can take somebody who's in big trouble and, and help them out of it, but you can't do it fast. So if there's one, if there's one message that should be delivered about how do you tell good treatment, it is that you can't deliver it fast. That's interesting. But I have heard, and even when I was working at ONDCP, about scams and and unreputable um, charlatans, even pretending they're like the Phoenix House or someone, and then just, you know, so you call that number and then they they send them to another place. Um, 
One of the events we hosted at the White House with ONDCP was inviting leaders from the health insurance industry to a working group about parity for addiction treatment. Being new to federal government, I struggled to learn all the various acronyms, and so I was very excited when I was on the inside track of creating a new government acronym. NCATS, National Consensus of Addiction Treatment Standards. We worked with NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, the standards expert, in order to elevate the field of addiction with voluntary standards. With COVID and administrative changes, that project took a back burner. But um, Dr. Rosenthal, what do you think of the standards treatment concept? Oh, I like it a lot uh, because it would... It would be very informative and people would have more confidence in treatment. You know, cancers can be treated. Heart disease can be treated. Addiction can be treated. And, and you can get such stunning results that they, they take your breath away. It's not, you're, you're not destined to be an addict. When I went to medical school, was once an addict, always an addict. That's a serious, serious bit of history. And we haven't recovered from that. I hope that some at some point that project gets uh, revived because I think it will help elevate the entire field by having standards. It, it's done that to the rest of the you know, medical profession. Um, so why not do that for addiction treatment? Well, if we go around and study the programs that have research and that have good outcomes, this is not an endless project. You could do this in two years. You could go visit the, the Phoenix houses and you could see what they're doing uh, uh, psychologically, medically, and, and in research. You could put this together relatively quickly. Yeah. Um, so Mark is also an insurance broker. So I have to ask you, um, do most insurance uh, companies or, or uh, plans cover addiction treatment? Or is that still a barrier? I... You know, I don't know the answer to that. I think it is yes. I think, though, it is very time limited. And uh, insurers are pushing for seven days, <laughs> uh, oh. up to 28 days. And you know what? Not enough. As Mother Teresa said to the, to the person who gave money and said, uh, I'm I'm glad to be able to help. She said, "Not enough." Yeah, yeah. I think they were when we met at this uh, event with ONDCP. Some said, "Well, you know, you want your treatment center to be in Malibu, but that's not going to be covered. We're going to give you something local." Uh, that wouldn't matter. That wouldn't matter at all, and it wouldn't necessarily have to raise treatment costs. Right. But if they charge more, I don't know. They had they they wanted. You know, they're working. We're they're trying to meet. Their obligation, but also their bottom line. What you're pointing out, though, is that you have for-profit people who are peddling BS. Okay. What do you mean? I mean that they have no data and that they're, 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 they're saying, you know, we're, we have treatment and we have a spa and you can get massages and you can walk on the beach and so forth. This, this isn't treatment. This is a denial of what needs to be done. And it's very harmful because it leads it leads people to think that something can be done magically or quickly, and it can't. Treatment is hard work. It works, but it's hard work. Yeah, it's it takes an effort. Right. Um, it takes an invest investment of the person um, to make things right. 
What do you think the pandemic has done for the treatment industry and patients? Uh, not much. Uh, because the, pan the deaths from the pandemic have overshadowed the deaths from drugs. And so while drug use deaths are higher than they have ever been, so are pandemic deaths and, and, and virus deaths. So I think, one, you have the seriousness of the drug problem clouded over. You have increased drug use or deaths of despair of people who have lost jobs, lost homes, lost families, who turn to drug and who uh, overdose or, or suicide. Uh, and governments are so strapped financially that they can't expand treatment, that they can't invest in treatment. So you, you not only don't we have uh, leadership on a federal level, we don't have leadership on states levels. And if anything, I think we've taken steps backward. So you establish the Rosenthal Center to make a, a difference, and I enjoy your uh, regular briefings. Can you tell listeners about what is the, the Rosenthal Center? The Rosenthal Center is a small public policy think tank. Uh, we're interested in all of the issues of drug abuse. We're interested in what are best practices. We uh, have newsletter. We have website. We have podcasts. And we're trying to get people to know what's important and uh, what to do, what works, what doesn't work. Uh, what's real, and we're getting some traction. We're, as I say, we're small, but um, uh, there is we we have a following, uh, and uh, we we have a big, more, a big following. We have a big following. We have more than a hundred thousand people who go to our website. Uh, I, I think we're making a, a a little bit of a difference. I think we're helping, and I, I and I'm pleased to be able to do it. Because it's a, a, a good way, I think, to use the uh, experience I've had over the last half century uh, to further the cause. And, that, and that's important. I think you support Xing the X waiver, the, the, which uh, you know, started as uh, allowing physicians to treat people with opiate use disorder, but now is really a barrier for physicians to treat patients who have an opiate use disorder. Um, the mandated education to 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 prescribe MAT. I I don't mind uh, physicians being able to prescribe uh, useful drugs, but the downside of it is that physicians who are prescribing, for the most part, they don't have a view that their prescriptions again not uh, be uh, an ongoing. Right. Medicines and for even for a lot of disease processes are just uh, one tool in, you know, holistic approach, right? Your diabetic medicine is just one thing, but you still, you know, diet and exercise and lifestyle um, is important. And for addiction, even more so. Much more so. And treatment has to be demanding, comprehensive, and peer-driven. And then it works. That's great. 
Well, I wish you the best of success in 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 that in in for the for the center and, and really for our nation. What would be your advice to Mark Nimitz, who who called in with his question about you know differentiating quality treatment versus scams? Well, I, I don't know what Mark's position is in the insurance industry, but to the extent that he could bring colleagues together for educational seminars so that they understand what good treatment is. The very question asked would be very helpful. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts give you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors. A sincere and warm thank you to CCR, Center for Community Research in San Diego, enhancing public health and safety through informed action. We want to hear from you. Post a comment or email us about one thing you learned from this program. We thank you for listening and hope you will help our rating by giving us a five-star review. And subscribe so you won't miss any of our information-packed weekly shows. Visit our website, hightruths.com, to submit a question, take a quiz, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Until next week, this is High Truths on Drugs and Addiction. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions, and I am your host, Dr. Oni Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths.